We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Abbas Haideri, the Senior Associate Dean for Medical Education at the Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine. Dr. Haideri previously served as Associate Professor and Associate Dean for Undergraduate Medical Education at the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Medicine. Prior to this, Dr. Haideri has expertise in team-based learning and competency-based education and has composed over 100 peer-reviewed presentations and publications in medical education. Dr. Haideri has received numerous awards, including the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians Teacher of the Year Award and the UIC College of Medicine Emerging Innovator Award. Dr. Haideri authored and helped advocate for the passage of Oregon House Bill 2706, which allowed opt-out HIV testing for pregnant women. Dr. Haideri received his undergraduate degree with honors from Harvard University, his medical degree from the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Medicine, his master's degree in public health from Portland State University, and completed his residency training at Oregon Health and Sciences University. Abbas, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's my pleasure, Ted. Great. Abbas, can you please tell us a bit more about your professional background and what brought you to the Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine? I'm a longstanding practicing family physician, having worked in community health and academia for many years and had a job that I truly felt I would never leave in my entire lifetime. It was practicing and teaching at my alma mater, University of Illinois at Chicago. However, once in a lifetime opportunity knocked. That was to help start this new medical school at the Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine. And it was so well aligned with my personal mission vision. I really felt it was an opportunity too good to pass up. Outstanding. And the School of Medicine is opening its doors to the first class of residents in just a couple of weeks at the end of July 2020. So this must be a really exciting time for you. Um, can you tell our audience about? that mission of the School of Medicine that lured you away from your alma mater? Yes, absolutely. It is very exciting. In fact, uh, 27 days and counting. The mission of our school is to provide a world-class medical education that ignites a passion for learning, a desire to serve, and unwavering commitment to improve the health and well-being of patients and communities. Outstanding. That's a a very noble mission and, and will serve the communities well. The medical school was recently named after Mr. Bernard Tyson, who passed away unexpectedly last year. Can you tell us about Mr. Tyson, about the decision to name the school after him, and how his legacy will be reflected in the school? Big loss for our school, and he was an amazing contributor to the school from inception on in. Bernard's vision for the school was to help transform health and healthcare in America a vision that we believe will inspire us and our students every day. The vision and his passion for the medical school was a driving force in its creation. He was committed to many things, but including a prime importance for equity, inclusion, and diversity, and courageous leadership. 
these same values are at the core of the school's mission, vision, and values, which are reflected in our school's curriculum name, which is INSPIRE, which stands for Integration, Nurturance, Scholarship, Population Health, Innovation, Resilience, and Equity. Mr. Tyson understood that social determinants of health, such as housing and food security, which are circumstances outside of the walls of our hospitals and medical offices, have a huge impact on personal and community health. These and other topics are being woven into the fabric of our medical education in very specific substantive ways. These include longitudinal clinical experiences with patients in medical centers over time, really understanding the realities of patients' lives, having them better understand what it takes to be change agents in the clinical setting and beyond, and a required two-year service learning experience at local federally qualified health centers whose mission is to serve those who are underinsured and uninsured. So essentially, it's an acting Bernard's vision through everything that we do in the school. Outstanding. And that mission around diversity, equity, and inclusion has just always been important, but just so much more important now in the wake of the George Floyd murder and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and the protests going on. So it's, it's really great to see the, the medical school pursuing that. Can you tell us a little bit about, more about that service learning experience? That, that's really quite unique. The service learning experience is where students go once a month and are placed at one of six federally qualified health centers in the Los Angeles area. And they partner with community health participants at the local health center and community members who've identified their needs and identified what help they might want and need for improving the health of their communities. This is an opportunity for the students to actually take what they learn in the classroom and basically bring it to life in action at the community health center. Abbas, can you tell us how the Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine will be different compared with other traditional medical schools that have been around for decades or longer? I want to lead with the fact that we are fortunate to have learned from medical schools, both established and new, regarding lessons learned, best practices, what they've called from the literature. We've had the privilege to kind of build anew from the ground up. So with that benefit, there are several distinctive features um, of our school, and I'll highlight them from the perspective of our curriculum. First of all, we have a competency-based approach, which means having the end in mind, what do we expect of our learners by the time they graduate at different points in their training? Are we really graduating the types of doctors that we want? That's kind of one way in which we are distinctive. Another way we are distinctive, to the best of our knowledge, we're the only medical school in the country that has an entire department for health system science. This health system science department enables us to have a four-year curricular footprint for health system science activities in years one, two, three, and four. Another distinctive feature is our cadaver-less, technology-enabled, and multimodal approach to teaching and learning anatomy. The classical medical school has cadavers in formaldehyde, and students have to dissect out, and look at different parts, and learn anatomy that way. We are basically using an approach that will integrate plastinates, which are essentially human bodies, which have been preserved through a special technique. They still get that tactile, hands-on feel with human bodies. But to that, we are adding technology-enabled virtual reality, or VR. 
In addition, we know that radiology or imaging, which is often pushed off to later in medical school, we're going to incorporate right from the first month of medical school and attach radiology, including the hands-on skill of point-of-care ultrasound, right from early on in medical school. So they're seeing the anatomy in 3D form, both through VR and through these plastinates, which are what we were seeing in museums a few years ago, um, where they put the bodies in in the really interesting artistic and, and action formats. And then seeing that in 3D and then immediately seeing the x-rays and CAT scans and ultrasounds and being able to kind of combine those and learn, which is seems like a really great way to do that. I, I want to ask you, just so that everybody knows what we're talking about, this Department of Health System Science. Can you tell our audience what health system science means and, and, and what it means to have a department around that? Health system science is essentially the study of how humans interact and what impact those interactions have on each other. So areas such as health policy, for example, or community health, as an example, or utilizing science to study other sciences. So things like evidence-based medicine or epidemiology are what we call domains kind of within health system science. Some other distinctive features of our curriculum include the use of a longitudinal integrated clerkship or an LIC. So how is that different or distinct from most medical schools? They have traditional block rotations or a certain short period of time, four weeks of family medicine or six weeks of surgery, such as that. In this case, students will start from year one in month one being placed for a half day a week in family medicine, internal medicine that will stay for all two years. They will be assigned one-on-one with a faculty physician preceptor They'll be at the same center for two years. They'll be assigned a panel of patients that they'll follow over time. This will allow them the ability to practice those clinical skills, develop continuity with patients, and also enact those health system science skills that we talked about earlier. Again, bring that to life and develop those health system science skills truly in action, not just in the classroom. Also, we mentioned it earlier, but it's worth repeating the required service learning experience. Rather than an elective, or an option for just a few students in a particular track. This will be for all of our medical students. And I'll close out by saying that our coaching program, of which we are very proud, Permanente has amazing physicians. And we have physician coaches that have a third of their job paid out to follow six students from one year and the six students the following year and work on their personal and professional development over time. So it's a really unique opportunity to have that kind of uh, attention to your personal and professional growth in medical school. That is actually truly unique, and it gets goes far beyond the the idea of having an advisor and a very personalized touch from the medical school. So that's great, Abbas. We had touched on earlier the the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion being part of Bernard Tyson's legacy within the school. Can you tell us what the medical school has done during the interview and recruitment process to assure a diverse student population? It's an excellent question. Recruiting and ultimately matriculating a diverse student body requires strategy and intentionality. We were very intentional in how we structured our admissions process. I'll describe a little bit of the detail here. Admissions work begins with the recruitment of pre-medical students. We ensured that we attended as many schools, pre-health fairs, and conferences as possible especially those targeting students historically underrepresented and underincluded in medicine, first-generation students, 
students with disadvantaged socioeconomic status, students of color, non-traditional students, et cetera. The faculty we've recruited to work in the admission space are themselves from diverse backgrounds. And they are well-trained in utilizing what we call a holistic approach to admission. It's important to understand what that means. The holistic approach will utilize not just grades and MCATs, which those are important criteria, but also the distance traveled in one's life. What obstacles have they faced? How have they overcome them? That kind of thing. In addition, our actual day of interviews utilizes both the traditional one-on-one -on -one interview and what we call multiple mini interviews or MMIs. And these are essentially situation-based encounters where the applicant problem solves and discusses and communicates through certain situations. So it's better to get a better handle on how they think, how they operate, how they behave, if you will. So it's behaviorally anchored rather than just in a one-on-one -on -one kind of traditional interview. I'm proud of the fact that all of our faculty are required to go through implicit bias training. And that is the requirement. And in addition for our admissions interviewers and all of the faculty involved and the staff in the admissions committees. All of our staff are also required to go through uh, implicit bias training, anti-racist training, and that's for faculty and staff. And I just want to emphasize how important that is for schools to be recruiting students who are underrepresented in medicine by their background and have a distance traveled and have faced some adversity in their lifetime. Um, it, it really does help them relate better to their patients um, by having traveled some of the same roads that their patients have traveled. And right now, our healthcare workforce across the country, and certainly in California, there's a big disconnect between what the healthcare workforce looks like and what the population of the state of California looks like. And there's very clear data that you get better health outcomes when there's alignment between patients and their physicians in terms of um, racial and ethnic background. So I applaud you for all that work on that. You just brought up the implicit bias training that the faculty will go through and that the students will experience. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about how topics such as social determinants of health, social justice, implicit bias, and anti-racism will be addressed and incorporated into the medical school curriculum. So let's start off by just a definition first of social determinants of health. So these are the things that physicians and other clinicians can do to address social structural, environmental risks. The first thing physicians must learn is to ask about them, view them as actually part of their responsibility to understand the community and the setting in which their patient lives. They must learn, and we're gonna be teaching the students how to ask questions like, what their patient's lives are outside of the clinical space? What are the factors that are influencing their patient's ability to view their own health Science, 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 science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? <laughs> Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Woo! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.
and how their patients conceptualize health. Physicians aren't always trained in this and how to think about social issues in a clinical setting. And so we believe that by providing this frame of reference, this, these skills to view patients in this light will help improve the overall health, as well as the health in the communities through our service learning curriculum that I mentioned earlier, for example. That's how we're addressing the curriculum around social determinants of health. I'd like to add around the social justice, as you brought up that point earlier as well, the Kaiser Permanente Healthcare System makes it easier to make these issues visible. Its focus on homelessness, food insecurity, and other social issues allows an opportunity and access to teach students how to look at what is going on in communities and what we can do as a school and as physicians to address them. I mentioned I would touch base and reiterate the service learning curriculum as a unique opportunity for doing so. So having a longitudinal two-year experience with a consistent community organization working with a specific community allows that opportunity for students to learn how to be advocates for their patients and communities and also work at community level factors. We hope this will instill a sense of advocacy and activism within them and we will be formally training them, for example, to live up to our mission, I should say our vision statement that includes our graduates will be courageous leaders of change. We have also taken a very intentional and deliberate approach to constructing inclusive curriculum materials and patient case presentations. All course materials are reviewed by an instructional designer who is a member of the Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity, or EIND, curricular work group. The intention here is that our materials will not just have what you often see in medical schools with perhaps people of a certain age, a certain racial background. It really is going to be more inclusive and intentional in that regard. Also, we have a formal curricular thread in equity, inclusion, and diversity where students will learn how to become more aware of their own individual biases as well as the systemic biases and structural racism that is pervasive in healthcare in our society. In collaboration with the advocacy and leadership curricular thread and the service learning part of our curriculum, students will learn to become allies, advocates, and activists who will challenge and ultimately change the entrenched systems which perpetuate inequities. Lastly, by graduating a diverse and inclusive group of students, we will intentionally contribute to a physician workforce that is much more culturally humble and better prepared to meet the needs of diverse communities that they are privileged to serve. That's outstanding. You know, traditionally in medicine, there's been this focus by physicians on what's going on in the medical office, in the exam room, or in the hospital room, or in the operating room, and, and not really taking a bigger picture look uh, around what's actually going on in a patient's community and what are these social determinants of health that are driving these unfortunate health outcomes that, that lead the patient into the office or into the, into the hospital. And, and it's great that you're really broadening students' perspective earlier to, to be more well-rounded physicians and to really consider that holistic approach to patient care and understand that what you're doing in the office is actually just a very tiny part of that person's life and there's so much more of their life going on outside of those four walls. Abbas, the Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine has announced that tuition will be free for the first five classes. Just a few other medical schools have received endowments that have allowed them to become tuition-free. 
Can you tell us about this decision to offer free tuition and also perhaps discuss the vision for how this might impact the type of work that graduates of the medical school will do in the future? That's right. Our school will waive all tuition and fees for classes entering in the fall of 2020 through 2024. This waiver will be available for each class for all four years of their enrollment. We know that medical school is expensive and that debt can impact students' future career choices, as well as the type or location of their clinical practice. Our hope is to minimize those concerns for students and allow them the freedom to choose any specialty they're interested in, especially for those that are focused more on community medicine without the fear of having to pay off debilitating debt. We've seen how the, co- how the COVID pandemic has impacted education at all levels. And we've actually spoken with medical students on two other episodes of this podcast about how their training has been disrupted. Can you tell us how the pandemic has affected the launch of the medical school? Let's begin with how we had to pivot for the final recruitment and then eventually onboarding of our students. We hosted virtual activities for the students, um, informational sessions about each office and department, meet and greets with the deans. Our faculty created individual selfies so students will feel welcome. Opportunities for students to really get to know and greet each other. They had a a group me um, kind of space for themselves that were accepted and ultimately, you know, matriculated to the school. So all of these were designed to assist students in getting to know what our school culture is, who we are, and provide a deeper understanding of themselves and us as an institution and our curriculum. That was more on the admissions front, if you will. And then we also had to have uh, make some tough decisions, right, and discussions around how we were going to open the school. So after discussion with public health leaders, conversations with uh, Kaiser Permanente infectious disease doctors, epidemiologists, those who study public health essentially, feedback from faculty and staff, consultations with deans from schools and elsewhere in the area, review of best available evidence to date, and extensive discussion. The plans as of this week are to re-enter the school campus and deliver in a hybrid fashion, meaning both in-person and virtual for our students. We recognize though that these plans may require modification at any time as new evidence emerges. We are tracking very closely the current rise in cases, test positivity, and hospitalizations in LA County. So this is a highly fluid situation. The schools that plans may change as newer information and guidance develop. Yes, and I usually try to timestamp these interviews, and sometimes there's a little bit of a delay between when we record and when an episode is released, and just because everything changes so fast. So I do want to say today is July 1st. Incidentally, you know, the the COVID in California really seems to be making a, a significant comeback, and Governor Newsom just today ordered 19 counties to kind of stop uh, a certain number of indoor activities, group activities. So as you say, I, I just want to timestamp that because things may change between over these next few weeks as, um, as you have to make decisions related to the, to the medical school. So how has the pandemic affected the learning environment and what types of changes have you had to make for classes that are going to be beginning in just a couple of weeks? So let me start by saying we're lucky again being a new school. Um, when we have our first class coming in, 
the new building, which is literally built anew for the school, has a lot of unique features that other educational and healthcare facilities don't share. So I want to highlight a few of those. First, it was built to house over 200 students at a time, along with many additional faculty and staff. Given our inaugural class has 48 students, and that our faculty and staff are not yet at steady state, we have ample room for physical distancing. Second, our education building is brand new. It has a contemporary floor design that emphasizes open spaces, freedom of movement, and technological capabilities that can enhance a variety of learning methods. Therefore, we have considerable flexibility in our approach to safe and effective instruction in a physically distanced environment. We're very very fortunate to have that um, at our disposal. The school's approach will be regularly updated to kind of reflect ongoing evaluation of distancing guidelines and physical space, analysis of risks and benefits, and monitoring conditions, as we talked about earlier. Um, We will be conducting in-person teaching as uh, technically feasible and able, applying distancing guidelines with universal masking, that's one impact, having six feet of distance whenever possible. There will be some instructional modalities that we've intentionally chosen to be virtual. These include history and communication skills with patients, because you're not able to see the nonverbal or their faces or their lips when they're talking, is one example. Another is the virtual anatomy that we mentioned earlier and hands-on for the plastinets. We'll be using technology and imaging and kind of a camera to view in faculty kind of articulating different parts of the plastinates, for example, rather than students touching the plastinates directly. That's an intentional use of virtual or remote instruction rather than in-person. But again, due to the ample space that we have in our building, um, we're lucky enough to be able to say, let's take our 48 students, put them into groups of eight students, and distribute those small groups of eight students with their one or two faculty across our building. Um, that's really a distinct advantage of a small class size and having ample space. Yes, that's actually a very fortunate position to be in. Abbas, how has the COVID pandemic affected opportunities for clinical learning where students would normally see patients? In in traditional medical training, they start clinical rotations with patients in the third year of medical school. Um, But the new trend, and as you mentioned earlier, is toward earlier exposure to patients. And so the the pandemic must have affected this to some degree. Yeah, so um, highlighting a distinctive feature of our medical school earlier, I mentioned that in essentially month one, half day a week, they'll be in family medicine, internal medicine. I'll add that in second year of medical school, that's when all of what we call the core clerkships will occur. So pediatrics, psychiatry, surgery, et cetera, those will also be a half day a week starting from year two, the entirety of year two. Occasionally we'll have surgery be all day so students can spend time in the operating room seeing a case through that kind of thing. We are actually having students participate with in-person care delivery at the clinical sites right from year one. So they'll use appropriate personal protective equipment or PPE. We imagine given the clinical schedules have a combination now of both telemedicine and in-person care, which COVID definitely induced into the practice space, and that students will, in fact, are going to get trained in telemedicine as well early on. They can participate in both telehealth visits as well as in-person visits. So as long as the epidemiology of the infection and the practice guidelines, practice space guidelines uh, accommodate our students, we'll have them directly at the clinical care site. So in some ways, 
um, hasn't influenced it too much. And the other thing I'll um, highlight and mention a shout out to our colleagues in TPMG in Northern California, because they have had long-standing longitudinal integrated perch report LIC sites for University of California, San Francisco. They've had a long experience with that. They also have a strong telehealth presence as does the rest of Permanente Medical Group. And so they've actually been recognized as national leaders, the KP sites, the Oakland site, and then the San Francisco site as national leaders in telehealth in the era of COVID. So we feel fortunate, again, to learn from our colleagues up north and then transact that here locally at Medical. Abbas, I, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your really busy schedule at baseline and then extra busy with all of the changes that the pandemic is inducing. I appreciate the opportunity to get a really intimate look at the development and rollout of a brand new innovative medical school. And so on behalf of the podcast and the audience, really want to thank you for sharing your insights and, and wish you all the best as the uh, school launches. Thank you so much, Ted. It's really been my distinct pleasure. And we are very excited uh, and humbled by this amazing opportunity to open a medical school, particularly in the face of a pandemic. Well, it should, should be great. And so uh, best wishes to you and all of your colleagues. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.